Oh. Ham Ochoa. <laughs> yes. Ladies and gentlemen, Pam Ochoa is tired tonight. <laughs> you know what? Hang on. Yes. Remind me. Remind me to tell you something after we go through all of this. Okay. Okay. All right, Pam Ochoa. I have a question for you today. My question is. You know what? I don't me I don't think I've asked this question before, but we're about to find out. Oh no. If you were Wait, in, wait. Uh, <laughs> this is this is our rough start. <laughs> okay, what was your question? I couldn't hear you. If you were in the market in for the market. a car. Oh. And you had two cars. One was a 2014, one was a 2017. One had 10,000 less miles on it, the newer one, but it was five grand more. What's the better deal? How do you decide what a better deal is, actually? That's the, the I, I went really specific, but grand scheme, how do you decide what's a good deal on a car? How did you decide? Because you got a new car when we worked together. A year ago. A year ago. You got another new one? Yes. Okay, so I need you to teach me about this, okay? Because, <laughs> hang on, can I can uh, I add more to this? Yeah, add more. That'll give you time to wake <laughs> up to. Okay. So, part of my problem is I'm a 32 year old man. I make decent money as an assistant principal these days. I have a car that's a 2009 Lincoln MKZ, 2009. It's still a good car. It, it really, it has a lot of problems, but it gets me to where I need to go. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But I'm in the market. Really what I'm wanting is a Jeep Wrangler. We talked about this off air last week. I think I'm, uh -huh. I'm going to adopt the Jeep lifestyle, at least for a little bit, to see if I like it. Jeeps are kind of expensive, though, so I have to be mindful. They have really high aftermarket value, like legit, like way too high. Like there's like they're just they're definitely overpriced but it's because they, they are what they are. Right. I'm not arguing that point. I've already accepted this is my fate. I'm just trying to navigate how to go through it. You know what I mean? So my question to you is I have never bought. I bought used cars when I was very young. And then my last two main cars were kind of hand me downs from family. Um, so this will be my first purchase of a new car to me i'm gonna buy used but it'll be a new car so i'm having trouble navigating all the ins and outs what to weigh what's important is it mileage is it year is it both is it ultimately does it just come down to what your payments are all of that stuff so walk me through your thought process you've had two new cars since i've known since i've worked with you i've known you for a long time but in the past what five years six years two new ones yeah, yeah new new three. to you yeah, probably new to me, three. Yeah, that's that's wild to me. So walk me through <laughs> how Ochoa pulls this off. Please teach me. I'm your oh, Padawan. Oh, my pad. Okay, well, number one, teach you can me, go to teacher. Edmund. <laughs> you can go to Edmund. I would look at the reviews of the year because sometimes a car looks like it's a good one, but then when you go back and review, I mean, like, so... Yeah, I'm, I usually do Honda. Yeah, I, well, I do all kinds, really. But here lately, I've been going with the Hondas. But um, my husband worked for uh, Toyota. That's what he did. And I'm telling you, you can't beat Toyota most of the time when it comes to longevity. We still have his car. And it's a 2008. And it has over 200,000 miles on it. And it is still going like it's, there's no issues. So it's a pretty solid car. So I would say going for the long term, you know, uh, do, does it does the review show that it that that particular engine works well? You want to make sure the transmission works because there's nothing worse than having the engine drop out on you or the transmission drop out on you. So you got to make sure it's not. Yeah. And I also look at what you did, the, how it holds its value, because the way it holds its value does make a difference later on when you need to resell trade in that value makes a difference. For example, the car three cars ago, uh, it actually had an electrical problem. The computer board went out and it was an Acura 
that I had. And they still gave me $6,000 and it wouldn't run nothing. I mean, we had to tow it and they still gave me $6,000. That's how much it was going to cost to fix it. And they actually just paid that. And um, I owed just about a thousand more on it. So I rolled that thousand into that next car. Now, the reason I went ahead and sold the next car, I traded it in, is because I, as we all know, I'm getting older and and, um, I don't want to have a lot. I want a car that's going to last and not give me a lot of fits at the and make me go to, you know, to the uh, mechanic all the time. Right. So I traded that car in for a newer version with lower mileage, not because my car was a bad car, but it held its value really well. And so because it did, I had a nice trade in. So I was able to trade it in and get a new one. Now I'm paying for whatever I still owed on that. So you got to kind of be careful there. So I'm, I'm going to pause on that for a while and and do this car. But it has a nice review on it. I already had this make and model before it retains its value and it's a newer model. Like it was um, about a 10 year upgrade just sitting in it was already an upgrade. So, you know, I liked a little bells and whistles and I don't mind paying for it a little bit. So I did get me an upgrade, but that's what I do is I look and see, you know, does it have longevity in its name? Jeep does. Does it have, it retain its value. Yes. What do the, I go to different blue book admin and I look at all the ratings that I can Jeeps, find. Jeeps are wild. Like uh-huh. they're so uh, just looking at them. Like I, for fun, like I was looking at other stuff cause it didn't, it didn't start with Jeep. Okay. Right. This is, it started with like, I was trying to figure out what I wanted cause I knew I was going to make a, a significant purchase. And I was like, you know what? I want to figure out even what I want. I know I don't want a car because I've had cars my whole life. I was like, I want to change it up. So I started with trucks and I went to Chevy and I was like, you know what? Maybe I want like a smaller truck, like a Chevy Colorado, right? They look nice. They're not too pricey. Um, and then I sat in a Chevy Colorado and I was like, I hate this. It's just a tiny car. <laughs> like, <laughs> Oh yeah. You, you have to sit them. They have to fit you. Yeah, they do. And then mm-hmm. luckily I work with someone who has an amazing Jeep. Uh, and it's all souped up and it's great. It's one of the newer ones, ah, to be fair. Right. But I, she let me drive it. Um, and I was like, I'm in love with this vehicle. I want, I want one of these. And then I've been, you know, diving into like off-roading and stuff like that. Now I'm not, I don't know how much of that culture I'm going to get into, but I like the, I like the prospects. I also like, I live in an area where there's tons of Jeeps. So I like this summer, what do I see? Doors off, top off. People mm-hmm. just driving around, enjoying their time. And I'm like, I want that. I want that in my life. The problem <laughs> is, is that Jeeps are so expensive. Like literally like they're So if you buy a brand new Jeep, I mean, you're not getting like if you got brand new base model, it starts at like third or like $40,000. And then if you right. want like all, you know, power windows, like basic stuff that's on pretty much everything, this goes up significantly more to where like brand new Jeeps are anywhere between 60 and 80 grand right now. Obviously I'm not, I'm not jumping into that life, but that's like, that's like your year's salary. That's right. And so you look at the used ones and typical used cars, you know, they, they really start depreciating in value pretty fast, but you can Mm -hmm. find 2013 Jeeps that are still close to $30,000. And that is Mm -hmm. wild to me. Completely. Yeah, wild. that's how. Yeah, I mean, that's how it was with my, the car I just traded in. It was, it was like a, a pretty big trade in. So here's here, here's my thinking, Ochoa. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm glad people are here for this. <laughs> cars, cars, workshop. You know what? Here's et <laughs> What I love about Crafted Draft <laughs> is it's 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 both of our sessions where we just get to talk to each other and and express ourselves people can join in on our journeys and all kinds of parts so here's my thing okay i'm sure we'll tie this into Uh workshop eventually my so when i'm looking at the jeep thing i'm like okay so it has a high resale value and i've been researching like jeep uh like the just listening to like people that are like jeep enthusiasts you know like the community of jeep owners like what do they talk about one thing to talk about is like the value has gone up exponentially in the last like several years Mm -hmm. um which is cool so in my head i'm like you know what now if i play this right i could potentially make an investment in a newer jeep 
that might cost me more, but it'll have a higher resale value. So people always tell you to be careful about buying cars because they, they lose value the moment you drive them off the lot, right? Well, that is true no matter what car. Mm -hmm. Sure, but Jeeps lose value exponentially less. That is just factual based on the market I'm right? seeing. And so I'm right. like, you know what? Maybe rather than buying just like, so I'm a 2009 Lincoln. A lot of things are upgrades, but if I get like a 2014 Jeep, but I have to sign a long lease, why not just pay monthly a little bit more for a newer one that I know will actually be a better investment because I can resell it when I'm ready because I'm going to keep, you know, gaining money. I'm going to keep creating more wealth and whatnot. So that that's my thinking is almost like an invest. Is that wrong to think of as investment since it has such high resale value? Because I know cars aren't cars are like a sunk cost, but I feel like certain cars aren't. Well, it just a matter. I tell you buy. what, you know, my husband, when you know, of course, this is several years back. Uh, but anyway, he had a an avalanche truck because he loved trucks. And at the time, he loved Chevy and and all of this. But uh, and then he started working for Toyota. And, and of course, then after that, everything had to be Toyota. But uh, but we had this avalanche and, you know, they quit making them. And the minute they quit making them, the price of it went high. We were able to buy two cars off of that one avalanche. We paid one off completely, and then we paid off half and financed the other half. So we were able to get into two cars with one vehicle. So yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with that as long as it's gonna, like you said, they're they're a you know they're a high um, supply. I mean, uh, what is it? High demand car. So that's what's going to keep them high. So if that's how they're going to do and nothing changes, I would just make sure that whichever model you get, I would definitely look at and evaluate, does this particular model have trouble or not have troubles? So I would look at, see, you know, does it have recalls? Does it have, uh, you know, does it have a good uh, insurance value, you know, rating, all that kind of stuff. So I would go to Edmonds and I would go to Blue Book Value and I would see, uh, reviews for that particular make and model because each year they make a change here and there most of the time. And so sometimes something goes wrong with the engines and, you know, they have some kind of recall that they have to do. And, you know, so make sure you don't have one like that. But other than that, I, I would just go for what you, what fits you and what you want to do. You live once, Jacob, you live once. It's your money. You're making it. Spin it how you feel. What, How's that? What great advice. I actually love that <laughs> advice. So chill. Advice. I mean, this is the Crafted Trap Podcast. <laughs> uh, we talked about reading your writing workshop here. And apparently everything else. We love to start conversations off with random questions. Ocho and I have been friends for a very long time. We've worked together. Yep. She has been my trainer when I was a young teacher. And now we're colleagues. And honestly, just great friends at this point. So we love jumping on, coming on to the podcast and sharing our daily lives with y'all. <laughs> So hopefully that conversation was useful. I don't know. Maybe you're in my boat. I know our, I feel like our audience tends to be a little bit older. So maybe people are listening. And if you have advice, if you've done what I'm doing, whether you're older, younger, it doesn't matter. Give me some advice on car bike because I'm, <laughs> I'm a heavy researcher. I dive in, I get obsessive. I, I pull apart every detail. I watch videos over and over and over again. I do all the things. And then eventually I jump in on these big purchases that's why i'm a big mac fan because once i learned about max i was like yep that's what i need for the rest of my life regardless of the cost and max so the jeep might be that i might get a jeep and be like you know what never again i'm sticking with you know whatever else <laughs> well, so, well then maybe you can get two cars uh, that's right i'll resell it and then i've just, done that because well there's no, also I mean people there, there's people who we, we've worked with uh, somebody. Um, he's been on the Teach Me Teacher podcast, so I don't feel bad about mentioning his name. Tony Moreau. Um, he oh, yeah. had a Jeep, good and guy, then he, he, he traded. Yeah, he's an amazing educator, a fantastic human being, both him and his mm -hmm. wife and his daughter mm -hmm. and his son. Um, I taught his daughter, which is why I mentioned her first. But um, he sold his Jeep at one point, so maybe I need to ask him. Well, since he's owned one, I've never owned a Jeep. It's not my thing. Yeah. It's just a weird my, culture. It's a whole culture. Now, my husband, you know, he's an auto technician. So I learned a lot from him because that's what he was. He was in the auto business. You know what I mean? And uh, but in the end, the last things that he did 
before he got sick is he worked on Humvees for the military and he loved Humvees. You know, that's almost, that's, that's like a supersized vehicle that uh, originated in the army, just like the uh, Jeep originated in, in, uh, in the military as well. So, but anyway, he used to work on Humvees and he loved them. He thought they were the coolest thing. We never owned one, but he sure did love them. Those were expensive cars. (laughs) So there you go, everybody. That's right. So today, regardless of what's (laughs) happening in my car purchasing world, today we are talking about reading, writing, workshop, and everything in between, pretty much. But the number one thing that we're going to be jumped to today is annotations, right? This is something that I think it just comes with the territory. I think... uh, annotating is something that people just assume is an amazing thing. Um, But you and I, when we were kind of thinking about topics, brought up the idea of how useful annotations, what annotations are actually useful, what are annotations. So we're going to dive into that. This is going to be a really interesting conversation because um, I imagine we're going to ruffle some feathers, maybe a little bit, or maybe verify some concerns that other people have. I don't know. I feel like our audience is amazing. So I think the people that listen to us all the time will definitely be into the conversation. People that are finding us for the first time, maybe like what two English teachers are debating, annotating what's going on. So we'll see what happens. But I want to tell you that this podcast exists because people like you support us over there on our Patreon, patreon.com slash craft and draft. Or you can go to craftanddraftworkshop.com. You can click on the link and find us over there on Patreon where you can support us. You get bonus videos, bonus training, and so much more, including our Craft and Draft system that we are still fine-tuning, working on, producing for you all, and so much more. But the people that do that, that keep this podcast alive, are Alicia, Brandy, Leah, Mark, Amy, Sarah, Rebecca, Courtney, Carol, and Alyssa, Destiny, Lori, Natalie, Susan, Tracy, Andrea, Hannah, Lori, Jen, Matt, Amanda, and... Donna, they throw a couple bucks our way to keep the podcast alive. Just like you can join us over there. You're going to get bonus content plus so much more, including our July training um, that will be coming up here towards the end of July to get you ready for August. Maybe we'll do two. Maybe we'll do 900 Ochoa. I don't want to make too many. Oh, no, no, we'll, no, we'll no. stick with one. you getting on here for 900. <laughs> so no, no, don't promise something no. that you're not going to do. We're not going to do Now, that. I would be willing. Okay. I would be willing. Look, everyone, <laughs> y'all DM Ochoa. She's retired. You tell her. You say, Ochoa, you jump on here and train us. Uh, okay. She has 10,000 trainings under her belt. It's okay. She can do that. But let's jump in. Let's get to yeah, the conversation. Alrighty, Ochoa, before we continue, mm-hmm. I told you to remind me about something. You don't have to because I reminded myself. One of the things that I find interesting about this podcast is it's very conversational, right? We jump on, we turn Mm -hmm. on the microphones, people tune in for the heavy philosophical stuff and the zany things and everything in between. That's what I love. I like having a show where we get to just be one with the people that are like us and and, and like the things that we do. We've toyed with the idea of doing a Zoom hangout. I think we should try one this summer. I think it would be great. And we could just leave it an open invitation. People that are patrons, patrons and people that aren't Um, Mm -hmm. and just see if people show up because that could be a fun tier to add to the Patreon. But it could also be something just fun to do in general. Just maybe one a month, maybe one every other month, um, whatever. Because I here's the thing. I used to uh, be a part of like this writer community years and years ago, like back in my um third apartment so this is like i was still like a loss prevention agent i was still in college i was still doing whatever but i was writing a lot in my personal life and i just connected with a bunch of other writers and so like i would listen to writing podcasts of like independent writers and stuff and i developed a lot of writer friends and what they would do is they would do a show like what you and i are doing right now and then Mm -hmm. they would have like an after hours hangout so they would be like all right guys everyone that was watching live jump into the live zoom or hang out and people just hang out forever. Like it would be like the hosts would be like, they'd leave. Right. A lot of them would go. Some of them were in Australia. So it was like the middle of the day for them, but it was like 3am for me. And so we would just be having these conversations, but it was cool because we were connecting and people that were a fan of the show, you jump in and then everyone like 
the conversations don't have to stipulate on me and you. It would be like we would have a conversation. Other people jump in. I, I think it would be a cool idea for everyone just to. I think we ought to try it. A nice little hang, almost like craft and draft after dark, so to speak. Oh, okay. I don't know about the after dark part. <laughs> <laughs> when the lights go out. That's right. Well, craft and draft comes on. The no. after dark is from my experience down in Austin at a TASP. You know. Oh, I don't. Uh, that, uh, principals uh, know how to party. Let me tell I you. I don't know about principals. <laughs> <laughs> you might not want to be broadcasting that. They're going to start inspecting party? the test aspect of oh, life. Oh my goodness! Wow. Well, we'll I'm see what teasing. Happens. I don't know. Sidestep. All right. I did case. not go to TASP. <laughs> the hangout aspect would be kind of cool. Though. Yeah. No, that would be fun. All right. Well, we'll think about I said, that. Let's do it. Listeners, let us know. And maybe not. We'll do it anyway. Who cares? Well, sometimes Ocho and I do that anyway. We're like, let us know. And then you don't talk. And so we do it anyway and find out. But yeah, annotating Ochoa. This is something that I, I'm be 100 percent honest. And say. I don't really care. I and annotating is it's fine. I think so when I became an English teacher for the first time, our department chair at the time, so it was my second year of teaching, we had like this very specific way of annotating. It was like, I don't even remember what it was. It was very, it was very close to, uh, beers and probes, I guess, but it was, it was very, <laughs> it was very much in line with like, you star important things. You put a question mark where, uh, something doesn't make sense. Or you have a question about something. You put an exclamation point about something you if remember. You're yeah, yeah, like all of that stuff. And mm -hmm. as a young teacher, I was like, okay, sure. But as I did it, I read, and this could have been me as a teacher, though, right? And I fully accept that. And it's something that I think we all have to accept that sometimes the way we teach or our styles don't lend themselves to certain strategies. But. I was doing it and I found myself caring more about whether kids were putting stars, exclamation points and question marks on their paper more than what that's supposed to do for them. Mm -hmm. And once I became a teacher that was able to think that way, that was able to go, okay, so what learning is happening because of what I'm asking them to do versus are they doing what I'm asking them to do? Um, that's when I flipped and I was like, I don't really care. And so I would teach annotations and I would show them how I annotate every once in a while. But I was also honest with my students and I was like, I don't really do this all the time. Like I, what I do is I tend to, uh, read something and process it as I'm going and I consume a lot of information and then I kind of put it all down afterwards. I understand a lot of people don't do that. And I understand that we're teaching readers of all kinds of backgrounds. We're trying to give them all kinds of skills, et cetera, et cetera. But sometimes I feel like annotation becomes more about the strategy and, and less about the learning. And that's my biggest issue. But that, so that's like my, that's my opening statement to this conversation. What would you be your opening statement to annotation? Well, I've, I have forced kids to annotate. Uh, how about annotating the entire book of Great Expectations? Because that was expected of you when... Yikes. Uh, <laughs> holy so, moly. What holy a book moly. to annotate. That, that killed me. <laughs> so oh my talking God. about ruining the... I mean, I didn't do that again. Talk about ruining the I was amazing really book. young. Well, I mean, I was like 20. Sure. No, we've all done it. I'm no judgment. Well, no, I was told I had to, you know, I mean, I had to, and I was so young, I didn't really buck any system. You know what I mean? It was like, I got to have my job. So I did it. And it was like, the kids were going, such, well, I wasn't no Cho at the time, but you know, do we have to keep doing this? I mean, oh my gosh. And I'm just like, well, so what I ended up doing is really started looking into why do we annotate? And, and I think annotation can be similar to I, I how about this annotation is to reading like diagramming is to grammar you know what i mean mm, interesting and a lot of people have dropped diagramming because that's the title of this about episode. the diagram is that the is that the yeah, episode okay that. all right <laughs> i better write it down but anyway uh 
Who knows what I'm saying? But that's what I'm thinking. Annotating. And the thing is, you're reading like diagramming is the sentences. Or yeah, I'll write it down. I'll write it down so I'll remember. But yeah. anyway, the thing is, um, it, it really is. It can kill, just like diagramming can kill the love of grammar for some. I love to diagram to be honest. I mean, I think it's cool. I didn't at one time when I was younger, but when I finally started understanding grammar, it became kind of fun. Uh, of course, that wasn't until college, by the way, but we had to diagram everything. We had to parse it all out and talk about it. And then we had to explain things. So, uh, you know, I had to do that, but it just makes it just well, horrible, to be honest, you know, and the kids hate it. I mean, it just becomes unengaging so quickly. And I think annotation can do the same thing to a book. Like you just mentioned, what a way to run a great book. And I mean, you know, it, it just ruined the life. I mean, the kids are like, do we have to do another novel? I mean, that's exactly do another one, you know, pull out the next novel we all had to do. Cause back then we did, it was as many novels as you could get in a year is what the deal was. And so it was one novel right after another. Of course, you know, a lot of it were the classics and, and, you know, the canon and, and all of that. And so, you know, we were just trying to get them in one. I mean, each, each um, grading period was a novel and then we had to annotate all of it. And, you know, of course, you know, post-it notes, we'd all put post-it notes all on everything and annotate the post-it notes. And then, uh, everybody would purchase a book. I remember having to charge kids like a dollar for the book and then they could annotate their own book. And it was just an interesting time. And one of the worst arguments I've ever seen in a uh, English session is one school against another uh, at a district meeting. And it was all over what novel we're going to annotate. And it was, <laughs> it was like a knockdown drag out. And there I was, was, in my 20s so it's a hot topic it was a hot topic then it's a hot topic today i think um i had you know one of my friends that uh, a teacher at some point in the past i, I don't want to say exactly specifically what past it was but they ran off i think a whole stack of uh, i mean it was it was at least um four inches deep uh and that was all annotation note cards for me to hand out to the kids because they felt like annotate. That's what they have to do for every book. And uh, so I'm kind of in your park, but that's not because, and, and I think it's because I have killed the, in it, the reading with annotation. So what I think, I think annotation is extremely personal. I think it is important to do. I think it's important that we teach us like, uh, grammar and all of that. I think it is important that we teach it. I do think that annotation can come in handy, especially when you are truly reading uh, critically and you really have to know the information. So to me, annotation is important that way. It was interesting. I keep going on. I'm sorry if you need me to stop. But but one of the thoughts that just popped into my head was, you know, when my husband passed away, um, I, you know, I knew we read the Bible and we talked about it and we talked about the Bible all the time because, you know, we, we went to church together and all of that. And then it got where he couldn't go anywhere. And because, uh, you know, he was sick for about 12 years. So, but anyway, when he passed away, um, you know, you go through all the stuff, you're trying to find, you know, quotes, what are, what, what are you going to read at the ceremony and uh, at the, at the funeral and all of that. And I opened up his Bible, which I really hadn't paid attention, but when I opened it up, it was annotated all over the place. And because of his, but it wasn't, when I say all over the place, it, it was annotated in small sections all over. In other words, it wasn't like a whole page annotated. It was like, you could tell what was really, really important to him and that he wanted to remember. And it was from that, that we were able to pull. So we used his annotations to pull scripture for his obituary, for his pamphlets and things like that. So I think annotation is very important, but I think it's very personal. And I think as a teacher, we've got to show the the kids how to use it in a way that benefits their learning i have ten thousand thoughts to this so i'm like i'm gonna go with the uh -oh. first one no it okay. was good you you opened up so many doors in my brain um the first one is mm -hmm. a story about my grandma granny betty uh, as we call oh, her okay i had a grandma betty yeah she passed away no. when you and i worked together that's right i remember 
Yeah. And that was, was sad. It I was. That. It, was one, it was my first, like, close family member. Yeah. Yeah. That did pass away. And so it was interesting to deal with. And I always thought, you know, I just on a side subject. I always thought, I know Courtney, she she loves when we go deep like this. This is, this is, is going to connect to her. Yeah, no. Hi, Courtney. We're always thinking about you. Um, <laughs> by the way, Courtney, you want to come on Teach Me Teacher? I should bring you on. Um, but our, I always thought, like, because I'm, like, deathly afraid of death and for a variety of reasons. But I always thought, like, dealing with that would have been really scary. But when I kind of went and talked to her, when she literally, I talked to her the night before she died. Right. And so she was sick. She was basically on hospice. She had, you know, all the care. She had all the meds. And I was, I, you know what? I felt like my brother, he got hit really hard by it. I felt really at peace with her. And, like, I just felt comforted by, like, this woman who did a lot of great things. She lived a very good life, hard to some instances, but a good life overall. And she was dying in a way that was very honorable, in my opinion. She was, I mean, she had cancer, right? So it was a, it was a, it was a kind of a shock, and it was kind of sudden. She found out, I think, within the year that she died. Um, but I felt a lot of peace from it to, to a certain extent, not saying it was easy, but there was just this, I don't know. It was like this, we're like overwhelming, like comfort almost. It was kind of, it was strange, but the reason I'm saying that is because when we went to the funeral, this was one of my favorite funeral services, by the way, I've been to several from, for some friends and stuff. And sometimes I go and, you know, people that have read teach me teacher or have paid attention to my conversations, you know, I have, I have a a contentious relationship with religion in a lot of different ways. And sometimes I go and I hear preachers and I feel like they're trying to sell me something. But what happened was when I went to hers is that this connects to annotation. I promise. <laughs> Just want to give that right there. All right. I, uh, I, I felt like he was just telling stories and he was being very honest and he was he was very honest about just how scary death is, regardless of if you're a believer or not, and how the uncertainty of it can be uh, scary. And he said that they had a lot of conversations, my grandma and him, about what death was. And she had brought up this uh, idea of eagles. And she was like, tell me about the eagles again. And I Googled it while you were talking, but it was Isaiah forty thirty one. But it says, yeah. but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. And for that, like always stuck with me um, in a very specific way, because she was like very fascinated with like this idea of eagles as she was, you know, on her deathbed and, you know, slowly, you know, succumbing to her disease and whatnot. And I thought that was interesting. But what he said was he went through her Bible and found all of these quotes that she annotated, right? And and had all of mm. these like highlighted passages and all of these like notes in the margins. And I just thought it was so interesting to kind of, because he read a lot of them, right? The stuff that was important to her. And I was like, man, how cool is that, that she's gone, but all the people that care about her in this room and we get to still experience her consciousness in a way, right? The stuff that stood out yeah. to her. And I thought that was really fascinating. So in a and so in a broader sense, when you said like annotations are personal, I think this connects to what you and I talk about on such a huge scale for re, uh, reading and writing workshop. And I'm laughing because it's it's like we, it, no matter what we get into these conversations, but just the, the personal aspect of what reading and writing is, what literacy is. It is a personal uh, declaration of who you are. What you read um, affects you, but it also tells the world who you are from the aspect. I can tell you my top 10 books and you'll go, oh, so you're that kind of person, right? You could do the same. Mm -hmm. But also what we write, what we find is important in literature, what we find, like what engages us, what does all this... And I think that school does an amazingly poor job at honoring that, right? Like it, it, it forces at kids. At times. Yeah, at mm -hmm. times, right? It forces kids into specific boxes for the sake of learning quotes. But really, when you're talking about the stuff that we're talking about today, annotating, leaving your mark, showing what you believe to yourself and to someone else. I remember my early years as a, 
uh, high school graduate. I was like barely like my first year of college when I really started like writing. I mean, I've always written, but I, I really started like writing and kind of honing the craft after I graduated. And my high school English teacher, Hammer, shout out. She, I told her, I was like, I don't believe, I don't know what I believe until I write it down because I'll argue with myself as I'm writing. And then once I write, I'm like, oh yeah, I do. This is kind of where I think she goes, welcome to therapy, right? Or welcome to (laughs) self-reflection. And I think that piece is what annotation is. It's putting your, it's taking something ephemeral. It's taking something metaphysical. It's taking something that has no physical value, placing it on the page so you can see it in this physical form. And then you can go, you know what? I do agree with this. I don't agree with it. And so annotations become a connection between how you're processing and the other human being on the page or the argument on the page or the philosophy on the page or the belief on the page. And I think when we go, you have to annotate with these five symbols. And if you don't, you're going to get a 50 on your paper. We'd lose all of the nuances that we just talked about for the last 15 minutes and we make it about doing the task versus the thinking and for us here at craft and draft and for just you and i and for i i think our passionate listeners especially our patreon people but the the people that are with us this whole time is that's what we're trying to avoid is is removing the human element from reading and writing but really putting it back in but that's that's complicated in a classroom sometimes because it's because now it becomes okay. So let's say we're, they're on board. People listening to this, like, yes, Ochoa Chastain, that went, y'all went all over the place. Y'all went to all kinds of corners of religion and philosophy and belief, but I'm with you. Annotation is you connecting to the author, the belief, the philosophy, whatever that you're, you're, you're connecting to yourself on the page. But how do you teach that? How do you, honor that in the classroom so that becomes the the major the major qualm i suppose so what are your thoughts well i actually i was gonna if you stopped and didn't ask that question that was what i was about to ask uh that same question so (laughs) so what do you do i got to you Uh, first (laughs) you got first so everybody not happy about that but it is i'll live i'll survive no i uh so what I ended up doing, because I thought that I I ended up choosing certain parts, like if we did a whole novel, certain parts of that whole novel, just certain parts that were like key to the theme, key to a change that the character just experienced, uh, key to maybe... Uh, probably the the climax especially in some some stories it's just hard to tell exactly where that that happens you know because the uh rising events just are so grand that it's hard to know exactly where that climax and there's a story in my head but i can all of a sudden can't think the name of it where i've had to reteach that more than once but anyway so i pick those moments that that small part of the book. And then I teach them how to annotate. Now, the way I teach them how to annotate is I'm going to borrow from our friend, Laura Robb, and that is read aloud, think aloud. So what I do, and this is where I like document cameras. I used to just do it, you know, I'm mainly on the document camera um, until they quit letting me have one. But anyway, not happy about that. I'm I'm okay though. I'm okay. But with my document camera, I would take that part of a page of the book and then I would actually model and think aloud and read aloud and write aloud. And I would actually do that. Now I would put like maybe a transparency, something clear over it. You know, you can do that. You know, there's also clear post-it notes that you can get now. They're a little pricey, but you can get clear post-it notes and then you can write over it. And that way you can repeat the process throughout the day. But what I would do is, um, is exactly that I would, I would model. And so I would show them you know, if I did use a question mark, I would write a question mark. I would uh, pull out critical thinking from uh, from the AVID, uh, you know, from my AVID training when I when I did some AVID training for critical reading. And I would draw, you know, circle key words and then and then take an arrow and point it. So so it wasn't just put a put a hashtag here, put a star here, put a 
It was more of a really get involved, circle the key, the most important word on that page. Why is that word so important to you? What did that word? And if I'm if I'm going for the theme, how does that word or that sentence relate to the, what you think the theme is? And then over here on the side, I would show them how I would how I would say ties to this, and I would point arrows. And so I would talk to them and show them what I would do, and then I would say, okay, now what I want you to do in your own self-selected reading, I want you to pick a place where you can actually. It makes you think. It makes you pause as a reader. And I want you to go back into that and reread that page and do to it what I just did to this one. And that's how I teach annotation and make it more personal. Yeah. And here's the thing. I want to add one more element to, I guess, okay. a, a perspective of this, which is <clears throat> I am a notoriously bad note taker. I hate taking notes that actually help. It makes me comprehend less in most situations. And mm -hmm. I've told, I, I, I don't tell my coworkers this all the time, but, um, I, it took me a while to tell maybe like half the year to tell my fellow principals, this that I work with, I work on a, a big principal team. And I told them, I said, if y'all see me taking notes, it's because I think you're judging me for not taking notes. That's why the only reason I'm taking them is for your perception. I don't care about these. I'm never going to look at these again. <laughs> I've actually done that. Yeah. Right. It's like this. It's this judgment. You're so great to take them. Yeah. yeah because people are writing stuff down, like in interviews, for instance, like I love, mm -hmm. like I've interviewed literally hundreds of educators through Teach Me Teacher. And so as an interviewer for like a job, I don't, I know what helps me focus. I know how to pay attention. And what I don't like doing is if I'm writing down stuff, I'm not listening to what they're saying right now. And so Every time I'm in an interview or every time I'm writing notes, uh, I would, well, I would say every time 95% of the time it's because I genuinely am doing it because I know people are judging me. Now with that said, my boss knows this by the way, at this point with that said, I reached a point in principalship to where I legit needed to take notes in some situations. I was like, I'm, I'm forgetting key things that I need to remember that my memory is just not good enough. The, the day is too chaotic and I remembering right. at 8 PM doesn't help me. Right. Um, so I developed a system that helped me kind of know when it's like, okay, there's, there's a lot here. So I'm going to start jotting down a few things. So I became a note taker sort of, but I, that was because I kind of personalized this idea of what this looks like rather than I'm just going to write something down just to write it down. Um, that's also something I'm not very good at. If you tell me to do something and you don't tell me the reason, unless like I literally have to, or you're going to fire me, I'm not going to do it unless you tell me the reason. And my boss, let's, we've had these conversations and I'm like, just give me the, like, give me the rationality and I'm all in. Right. But if you just say, Hey, do this to do this, it might be a minute before I get to it. Um, and I, I think our kids, I think that's kind of what they do. They're like, because there's times when the reason I'm bringing that up is because there's times in annotation where a kid might read something that might be really strong in fiction. They might not need to annotate in fiction. They might be perfectly fine. They've read so many books. They've read so many short stories. They they've had a great literate life to where they genuinely do not need to take notes because they get theme. They get all of that. They, they can kind of process it on their own. But you throw some nonfiction in front of them, some heavy nonfiction, maybe then their comprehension starts collapsing a little bit. Their background knowledge starts uh, not serving them as much. Their skill set just isn't there. And so I think that's interesting, too, is to allow that freedom in a classroom of, hey, you need to be aware of when you're struggling, because that's really when annotations come up, right? When you need to process something on a deeper level, when you're struggling to do something, when you feel like you need information, that is that. And so I, that to me is the better teaching point of annotation where it's like, it's that personalization, but it's also exposing kids to so much literature in a variety of forms and a variety of situations so that they even have a comprehension. Oh, you know what? I suck at poetry. I'm going to write all over this poem to, uh, get where I need to be right. To be able to comprehend it. Um, but to also have the self-awareness of, you know what? I don't need to annotate this cause I understand it. I get it. And it like, I don't like as a teacher, I need to make systems to where it's like, you know what? If, you 
uh, I need I, th- that freedom needs to be there because I think some people default to and we've seen this. I've worked on teams that are like, if they don't annotate, it's a 50, right? Or if they don't annotate, it's minus oh, yeah. 20. And it's like, what does that solve? Like, I get the idea, right? The idea is to make kids do something that's useful for them. And that might be cool for like maybe one or two assignments, right? You're teaching annotation. You're teaching thinking, okay, I want you to do this for these two assignments. So I know that you know how after that hands off you annotate when you need to and oh you know what you made a 30 on this writing assignment or this writing response maybe let's go back and let's annotate to see what we struggled with but that flexibility is where that's what interests me in education always is it's like how do we remove the school aspect to where yeah we need grades we need standards we need to teach all these kids all these things but how do we add flexibility enough to where that they can be human to where do they need to annotate on this? I don't know. Do you, can we have that conversation? Is this classroom available to have the conversation whether you can annotate on this or not? Or am I going to be an authoritarian? And so you have to annotate on everything or I'm going to remove 30 points from your final grade. And that's an interesting talk to me, but that's, I feel like it's, there, I don't. So, what would you do? Would you do what I said and kind of have maybe an assignment or two where you annotate and then leave it up to them? Like, how do you walk the line between do and don't, and I guess the nebulousness of personal choice in in annotation? I mean, I like the fact that you brought up poetry because I do. If I'm going to have kids actually annotate in a way where we're all um, the same right? Uh, it's usually in poetry because I'm trying to teach a pattern. I'm trying to show them that this particular poet used this particular rhyme scheme. And we're going to see what pattern that they created in order. And does that pattern make meaning? And does the rhyme scheme actually change at the shift in the poem? So that's what I, y'all, he made a face and it just caught me wrong. <laughs> I'm sorry. Sorry. Do you not like rhyming? No, that, that, wasn't, that, that wasn't what that was. I promise. <laughs> okay. So anyway, but um, but that's just a, that's just an example. Or um, if if I want them to see all the figurative language, they might be annotating for a specific thing. Uh, and so poetry is a great place to do that because it is kind of, you know, difficult for kids to understand. And so that's a great place, I think, where you're going to do annotation where it's all required and that everybody has to do it. And that way you can see, you know, like, so I, there I would do one or two stanzas and then I would have them do the rest of it. And then my my part of the grade would be, um, did they do it? Now, you're talking about the idea of choice. Uh, if we've done several of those, like I told you, I would... I would do the one novel that we're doing together. The one thing I would talk to them about, I would give a mini lesson on annotation first, talk about why it's important, how it's used, give them some examples, show them some of mine. Um, If any of the, ask them, does any of you already annotate? What do you like to do? You know, kind of get their feedback because, you know, if I teach them with the idea that I'm the only one in the room annotating, well, I might be, wrong. I mean, I'm making an assumption about my students, but every once in a while you have that student that's an avid reader and they learned how to annotate last year and they're still doing it and they love it. So I would hate to keep somebody from doing that. So I always invite them. Does anybody have a way that you do it that's different or have you learned a different way? And so this is what we're going to do this year. Now, when it's expected or required um, that everybody, you know, like we went through a time, I think if you remember the four questions, the four text dependent questions, mm-hmm. you know, we had to read that book and then everybody had to do those things and then annotate for those four mm-hmm. questions. Uh, so, Always. you know, I might, yeah. So I might make sure that I do that in the way that the district wants during whenever it is they ask us to do it. And then from there, I would just kind of fade out and then I would hit it in my conferences Um uh, you know, like what you were talking about. Oh, you're having trouble with this. Well, why don't we go back, reread it? Why don't you see if you can highlight some things or what are some questions that they just answered or that you need to ask and then maybe annotate for those questions. So it just depends, but I would definitely, it would be one of those hands-on first and a gradual release until they're able to do it uh, on their own. As far as like 
I've been on those teams too, where it's like, well, they're not going to annotate. They don't have 150, I'm being sarcastic, but they don't have 150 post-it notes turned into me. So they get, you know, zeros. I mean, I have, I have seen people just kill it on that and you know and i've been guilty and all i know is the kids when you start hearing them moan and groan in your classroom you probably need to self-reflect and see what you need to do different because if they're moaning and groaning to the point of uh, about the work that you're asking them to do and it's work that they weren't moaning and groaning on before and now they are then I think there's something that you've got to self-reflect over. And uh, I had to do that because I literally was killing the reading in my room. Like they were dreading it. I've seen, um, I've seen teachers do this with, um, and, and I'm not against like things like article of the week, poem of the day. I'm not against those things, but if you make every one of those things, a torturous activity and you uh, tie so many tasks to it, then it's, it's going to lose the purpose that you had for it to begin with, because the purpose is, is to give the kids exposure to a multiple, uh, if it's, if it's nonfiction to, you know, like if they're doing an article of the week or something like that, to me, the reason I would do an article of the week or an article of the day or a poem of the day is to give exposure. My number one thing is to expose these kids to a variety of topics and a variety of styles so that they, when they have to create their own or they have to self-select for something that is a purpose that they have, then they can do that, but they can do it because I have given them so many uh, opportunities to be exposed to those types of writings that it's no big deal. And so anyway, I don't know, I kind of went off on a tangent there maybe, but, uh, but, but sometimes we kill it with annotation. We kill those things every, every week you have to turn in your article of the week and you have to have, and they give you some, you know, I've seen them where teachers have given them an acronym that goes through everything yep. like a 10 letter acronym yep. and they have to do every one of those things. And I'm not saying I've never done that, but not for every article doing the same thing. Cause not every person writes an article the same way. So why would you, you know, why would you do treat everything the same when it's not? And so that's my little, um, my little soapbox and uh that's uh i've had to coach a lot of people out of that well and you're oh my god there's so many good things there i you're 100 right it's the we're doing this acronym right and it's like i understand what that means i understand why people mm -hmm. want to do that i understand why teams want to do that i don't even think it's necessarily bad right but right. if you're going to do that you also have to have a contingency plan for what happens when they read something that's not this formula? Right. What happens when a, a, a red herring is thrown at them or uh, something completely out of their, their wheelhouse? And so you have to be keep in mind, it's like, okay, this is what we're teaching because of these reasons. Awesome. Super great. Love it. We're vertically aligned. We're horizontally aligned. Awesome. Okay. What does this look like? when things are different are we available for when things are different are we holding fast and true to this or are we going to allow some flexibility that's where i think the conversation has to go it's not a don't do a formula it's not a don't have an acronym if that's what your team wants if that's what your district wants if that's what curriculum is spitting at you super cool stretch that conversation further differentiate for yourself as an educator Hi. and go Okay, so what do I do when this fails? Or what, how could this fail? And teach kids how to navigate that piece. Because I got to tell you, Ochoa, when you read, because uh, the, the big conversation is, you know, in elementary, it's getting that comprehension to a high level. It's getting kids to be self-sufficient learners, reading for information, right? Getting, you know, once they reach, you know, third, fourth, fifth grade. Middle school. It becomes a lot more about processing information, all this other stuff, analysis, and then high school is definitely analysis heavy um, up until college. And so when you're kind of watching that trajectory, you have to ask yourself, okay, when people, when, when real world people are using this strategy, what does that look like? Um, 
and and have that conversation. And I think that's what PLC should be. I think PLC should be a lot less sitting around um, looking at whatever the scope and sequence, which is fine. I think the PLC should be that too. But I think at least once a week, people should be like, okay, so this is our strategy. How do we break this? What are all the ways this strategy doesn't work, right? If we only use news ELA articles, sure. This strategy might work, but what happens if we pull something from the New York Times? What happens if we pull something from the L.A. Post? Mm -hmm. What happens if we pull something from uh, the Daily Wire? What happens if we pull something from, you know, any source, whatever, right? And I think that is where real, interesting, nuanced, passionate professional learning happens is we open ourselves up to that. I think the problem is that sometimes leadership doesn't let that happen, right? Because leadership, mm-hmm. uh, they want to see, okay, this strategy is there. Are you using this strategy? Did we come into your room during this five minutes and see the strategy that we said? Right. And as a, as an assistant principal, I'm very acknowledged. Like I I'm cognizant of that. Like I've had teachers, like I've walked into a room this last year. I had a teacher who's amazing, by the way, an incredible science teacher. I'm not even over the department. Um, Mm -hmm. I've seen this person teach incredible lessons. I walked in there one time, literally one time where kids, it was kind of an off day, right? Kids were catching up. Yeah, you have them. Some kids were on their phone. Some kids were like asleep. Like it was, you know, it's one of those days. And I just went in and I walked in and I could see him like get visibly nervous. And I talked to him and whatever. And then he came to me in the lesson or during the day. Uh, and then he came to me afterwards and he came to me like the next day. And I told him, I was like, Hey man, it's okay. I was like, I've seen you four different times and you've had great lessons. I was like, every single teacher has days like that day. Like, it's fine. Now, if you have that every day, that's a different conversation, but it's, it's, it's knowing the every, I don't know. Let me back up. Everything has nuance. And I think that is the interesting part of teaching. I think that's the interesting part of educational leadership. I think that's an interesting part of curriculum management um, is allowing for that. And I think that's ultimately where you and I and workshop teachers, I think we struggle for a marketability, so to speak. I think workshop is on the back burner right now in the grand scope of the philosophical conversation around um, literacy, not because of its lack of viability. We've cited tons of research on this podcast and we keep doing it. And when the book comes out, there'll be a pile of research in the book. Um, it's the it's it lacks marketability because it's not a one note process. It's a hey, here's this, but also there's 25 different ways that this could exist. Mm-hmm. And I think that's interesting. Um, and I think that the the countries and the school districts and the curriculums that are winning the most with kids and educators are the ones that have that and the ones that are losing educators the most losing kids losing ground are the ones that are a little bit more staunch and i think that to wrap that up back to annotation is if annotation is working for you then do it if if what you're doing is working awesome if your kids are checking out don't blame laziness go maybe i'm killing reading because i'm forcing them to write down I'm forcing them to put exclamation points upon everything. So now they're just doing exclamation points. So they get the grade rather than actually having surprises in a text. Yeah, no, that happens a lot. I mean, that's called fake reading. Yeah. We know this. We see it all the mm-hmm. time. It's, it's the bane of our existences as workshop educators. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Closing thoughts on show. We're at 58 minutes. What do you got? Well, I mean, again, I'm not bashing annotation. I just want to make that clear. I am maybe asking everyone to rethink how you teach it so that it can be useful and personal for your students. Um, like I said earlier, it's it's really fascinating when you go through someone's book that that is a really good critical reader and they have annotated things. And then, like you said, you, you kind of see their consciousness there their words and it's just neat to see how they feel about something and so i mean it it can be passed on if you will but uh, i just think that's what we have to share with our students we have to show them the importance of annotation and how it can help us become better readers and that's it for this episode ladies and gentlemen i hope you enjoyed it as much as we did that's pam which i'm jacob chest we are two Educators down here in the state of Texas doing what we love, talking about reading, writing, workshop, and 
pretty much everything else in between. If you have cars. any advice on buying cars, let me know. I need all the advice I can get. Um, Ochoa is a wizard about getting new cars, apparently. But gentlemen, <laughs> if you like this episode, subscribe so don't miss anything. We release an episode pretty much every single Friday. If not, it might be Saturday morning, Friday night, whatever. It's coming out between Friday and Saturday. We're trying to work on that. Honestly, my schedule has been crazy. I post stuff. If you get angry about it, blame me. It's fine. Join us on Patreon. You can join us at patreon.com slash craft and draft or Go to, you can also search Craft and Draft Workshop. You can go to craftandworkshop.com, click on the link. That's how you support us. That's how this podcast exists. You guys fund us. You guys throw a couple dollars our way. You keep the podcast going. You subscribe. You get bonus content, bonus episodes, bonus videos, and so much more. Just like Donna, Amanda, Matt, Jen, Lori, Hannah, Andrea, Tracy, Susan, Natalie, Tracy. Nope, sorry, Lori, Destiny, Nalissa, Carol, Courtney, Rebecca, Sarah, Amy, Mark, Leah, Brandy, and Alicia do. I know we're in the heat of summer. A lot of you guys are probably banking these episodes to go back to. But once you listen to this, after you're done enjoying the beaches or wherever you're at on your vacation, come back, give us a shout out, leave a review on podcast. If you have not already, subscribe if you have not already, and come back next week for another fantastic conversation. And as always, know that we are here for you.